Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, as usual, Susan Fox. Live long and prosper. And our guest this evening is the inimitable, irrepressible Houston Huddleston. Welcome to the show. Hello there. So you have, and the reason we invited you to speak. It was about three or four. We don't even know what to talk to you about tonight because there's so much going on. (laughs) And you've got got your hands in so many fascinating things. Uh, The first and foremost of which I can think of is the Science Fiction Museum. And we'd love to talk to you about that. Of course. And no, no, everybody who has been to a conven- major convention in the past couple of years has seen the uh, the bridge set, the Star Trek The Next Generation bridge set. And, uh, like, for example, at WonderCon a couple of years ago, we saw the ship from Oblivion, which is now in your collection. Right. And uh, just an amazing outpouring of uh, of love from the studios with respect to this. How did all of this get started? Well, you know, it's funny uh, that you mentioned the Oblivion bubble ship. I saw that like a schmuck fan, you know, like everybody else. I had no clue that we'd be getting that. You know, I just... <laughs> I remember I walked by it and I took a few pictures and they said, that's close enough. I said, all right. (laughs) Isn't it a beautiful uh, piece of work? I mean, it's just amazing that something that that looks that good is a prop. Well, that director I've gotten to know because the second – a lot of people say, how how do you uh, make these contacts? Do so and so and so. I just – I'm fearless because I feel what's the worst that anyone can ever say and that's no. And – so the second that I heard that we were getting uh, that and several other Oblivion props, I immediately called the director and I said, uh, I, we have this, you know, and, you know, I, I want to do programming for it. I want to do create new uh, interactive educational programming for your ship, for the – we have two of the drones. We've got – we either have two or three of the cockpits that were made and – all this stuff, and I just I go to the head guys, mm-hmm. and they can say no. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. they do say no, but most of the time, they're so knocked out that we're the only ones doing it this way. Uh, you know that they'll 
they they're they're open for it. But yeah, the way this whole thing started is I found the bridge of the Enterprise from Star Trek Next Generation and also the original series about it's been now three years and I saw it it, it was going to be thrown out. In in one week it was going to be destroyed forever. And the way I found this was the guy who worked in the same building as I did worked for Paramount and he told me that they were going to be that there was a split between CBS and Paramount and the properties were being split up and things were being sold and this was being that and all that and that this set had been sitting outside for uh, over five years and I knew about the next gen set but when I went down to the the warehouse I uh, brought a couple of really nerdy friends with me who were Far bigger Trekkies than I who could tell you, oh, that episode from this, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, uh, which I've, I've got too poor of a memory for that. But this guy said, oh, that's, that's the grill above the turbo lift in Captain Kirk's bridge. Oh. Said, what? And then he said, yeah, that, and this is the, uh, this is the computer to the left of, when to the view the viewfinder on the bridge of the enterprise and this is the so and so so it turned out we had both bridge sets from original series and from next gen that were being they'd been made for the tour and this star trek tour from the late 90s that went from germany to god knows where i think it it also came to long beach in the end of 2018 um, but I got these things because they were going to throw them out and I paid $7,000 in shipping and I had no clue what I was going to do with them. I'm not independently wealthy, so I couldn't just take it upon myself to restore them and put them in my living room. So I went around asking very rich people, very famous people if they would help and they wouldn't. They weren't interested. They had no rights to Star Trek and they didn't care. So... I gave it one last shot and went to a Star Trek convention in Vegas in 2012, Mm -hmm. and I met Ronald D. Moore, and I asked him, and he was the writer, producer of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and also uh, Battlestar Galactica, and I said, hey, if I do this, will you help me? And he said, yes, absolutely, and he kept his word, and anyone in Hollywood keeping their word is... A miracle in itself. Uh, so yeah, I, and I got all the best people behind the show, all the top guys, the creators, the producers, the writers, David Gerald, Andrew Probert, mm-hmm. Rick Sternbach. Any Star Trek fans will know who these people are because their names are on basically every book uh, and credits of, of those shows. And I got very lucky and then I'm sorry. I'm making this story so long, but I'm trying to <laughs> That's encapsulate okay. That's three okay. years. <laughs> um, and so I, I realized that even if we restored the bridge sets, a it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. It would cost at least two hundred and fifty thousand just to restore the Enterprise D bridge set mm-hmm. because. It's so massive, and so it's fiberglass and metal, and it's that's about what like it three costs tons to build it in the first stuff. place. And then uh, there was also where to put it, where to keep it, how to store it, how to ship it, how to insure it, uh, the electronics that would be needed to keep it looking like it's alive, not just a dead set. Mm-hmm. And also teaching real science through sci-fi, which was my 
intention pretty much all along to tie in NASA and to make it an educational thing, not just, oh, look, isn't that cool? All right, next. Um, and the only way to do that was to create our own museum because there's no museum in the world that presently teaches real science fiction through, through uh, I mean, real science or space through science fiction. Nor is there a science fiction museum outside of Seattle, which is uh, the EMP is an everything museum. So it's not concentrated directly on on uh, sci-fi. It's horror and mm-hmm. fantasy and a bunch of stuff. And I love that museum. But uh, the meetings I've had with them, they just – they don't do what we do and we don't do what they do. And you know, two years, year and a half later – we're finally getting it all together, so we, we're going to start our tour in early 2016, the first quarter of 2016. It's looking like we'll first be in Japan, of all places. Um, we Ooh, had to, that's a good it, idea. Pardon me, what? I say, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, well, we, as uh, selfish as this sounds, we had to go where the money was because we really have no money to do this because this is a multi-million dollar venture. And we raised 93000 through our museum Kickstarter and we raised 63000 through uh, – or 68000 through our bridge initially. But, uh, you know, that's that's a drop in the water compared to everything we need to do. And this tour is going to pay for that. So we've gotten offers from all over the world. Interestingly, every continent except for America, which is kind of sad. That is that is sad and surprising. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's they're just so selfish or they cons- excuse me, they consider it something so obvious here that it's like, oh yeah, we can just you can go to Universal Studios or Disneyland and you know, but it's that's not what we're doing. We're uh, we're doing something that's actual, actually educational and people can be inspired by and not just a thrill ride and that's it. Um, so that's – in a nutshell, that's what we're doing and for the next two years, we will be touring and all over the world. And then by 2018, we should start heavily on our uh, permanent location in Los Angeles. Do you have a location scouted out yet or is it too soon in the cycle? I do, but you know, uh, I don't have any money, <laughs> so um, yeah. they I can I can stand there with my little flag and say I want this one, you know. But they're they're not going to listen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, no, I honestly, Metro is redeveloping land of their subway station that's in North Hollywood, and it's on Lancashire and something. Mm-hmm. That it's a ten acre. Area and that's what we want to redevelop for our sci-fi museum, for our upcoming horror museum as well, and also for a restaurant and hotel and make it a, the equivalent of a downtown Disney or mm-hmm. a City Walk. This is sort of the project that ate your life, isn't it? Yes, but in a good way. It's uh, it's turned into something so much bigger and better, and I truly feel that this could change the world and change the face of the way we think of museums. The way I uh, – the, the best analogy I can say, instead of having to drag your kids to a museum, the kids will be dragging you. Oh, yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the horror museum. 
I mean, you just uh, you mentioned that as a sort of a, a, a throwaway line there, uh, but uh, the whole. The whole science fiction museum came as an outgrowth of, okay, I've got the bridge set. What do I do now? And uh, you started getting all these donations of, of exhibits and parts and props and costumes and things. And uh, people started giving you stuff from horror movies as well. Right. Well, I, I, I want to say they um, they offered them to me. Uh, they haven't given them to me yet because mm-hmm. I told them not to give it to me yet. I... If at all possible, I try not to physically accept a prop until we know where we're going to put it. Mm-hmm. And also there's the insurance and the keeping of it and the temperature controls and the, the dust and the putting it in a case and all that. All that stuff we can't uh, afford or do we have a place to put it yet. Uh, there's a lovely lady who has a whole bunch of Leonard Nimoy props and memorabilia and Spock's ears from – Mm-hmm. Uh, 66 and all this stuff. Uh, and I love her to pieces and, you know, I, her props or things are irreplaceable. And I told her, I said, keep it until we have a date and a time and a way to keep that and uh, the money to mm-hmm. uh, keep it and insure it. So, yeah, that that's the way it happened with the Horror Museum because we kept getting – uh, alien, the thing could be construed as sci-fi or horror, but mm. it could go either way. And but it's gory and it's scary, so you'd have to either have a blocked-off room with a notice up front or something. <laughs> um, because you have to think in this as the family market, and if you're going to put Evil Dead with heads exploding and yeah it's cartoony but it's also gross and bloody and if you put that next to the doctor who tardis you're going to offend people you just are (laughs) yeah but nothing's going to make a 10 year old boy want to go in that room more than a warning label exactly but (laughs) exactly and but he would have that choice of whether he wanted Mm -hmm. to go in there it depends on the 10 year old of course exactly it wouldn't be shoved in his face that's the main thing uh, so I went to our board of directors for sci-fi and I said, guys, if we do this, are you up for this? I won't spend a dime. I just want to see if we can pull this together for the horror and see if that works. And they all said yes, as long as it doesn't detract or distract from our mission for the sci-fi museum. And I said it won't. It will It, it will embellish it and it will – you know, on a business level, I'll just explain something. Um, say FX channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want – if there's something from FX or say Fox that I wanted, but they're not willing to give it to us. That's for sci-fi. And then they say, but you know, we have this new horror show that you know, uh, if you promote that, then we'll be apt to give you, you know, some promotion for the sci-fi thing. Oh, well, OK. So it's one hand washes the other. In that sense. So if we have two museums and we've cornered the market on those two things, one literally will help the other. And the other thing is, of course, there are over 20 different horror shows presently on the air, including several Emmy winners, Walking Dead and uh, American Horror Story. And there's only like six sci-fi shows. I did not realize that the imbalance was that great. It's, That's a surprise. It's pathetic. You know? That's a surprise. 
uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's a sad thing. But when you look at the numbers like that, I think I think it was a wise move, and the fans seem to think it is. And I immediately, within one month, I got Clive Barker and Joe Dante and Tom Holland and the daughters of Vincent Price and Boris Karloff and Jennifer Lynch and all these people. Uh, Sean S. Cunningham, who, does, who created Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. All these massive, major horror people who uh, want to do this. And I I don't think he'll mind my mentioning his name. I got a call last night from Greg Nicotero. And Greg is the KNB Effects, which is probably the, the biggest effects company around right now other than really? Weta. And... They do Walking Dead, but Greg's also the director of Walking Dead, the producer of Walking Dead. And he called me up uh, out of the blue last night. I almost lost my lunch. I was so, yeah, uh, uh, you know, because um, you, you have to keep it together. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's like the Spielberg in the effects realm. I mean, he's that big. He's, he's the equivalent of Stan Winston uh, or uh, Rick Baker even. Um, and he's, you know, he... He believes, like I do, that this is possible and doable and that it can inspire people as – the horror museum can inspire people as much or sometimes maybe even greater than the sci-fi museum can inspire future scientists and space and aerodynamics and NASA, Lockheed, Boeing, uh, SpaceX, all the rest, uh, but just in different ways. Well, every, for every scientist we've ever met, you know, every one of them has said, you know, I watched Star Trek as a kid and wanted to go. Absolutely. Yeah. And every special effects, every person I've ever met in special effects was inspired by some movie that they had seen or some TV show that they had seen. That's certainly true in my case. Uh, I was having to – I was at a thing called Mac Tech Conference mm-hmm. yesterday and – I was having to talk to these very brilliant guys. They were all Macintosh and computer guys, and some of them were very high up in the system, and I was standing there with some props from Oblivion because that tied in because there was a NASA booth as well. So we were mm-hmm. we were basically uh, double double dating <laughs> so speak, with the NASA booth on one uh-huh. side and my booth on the other, and the Oblivion props had NASA logos on them because it was future NASA in the movie. And so this one guy came over saying that he believed in our sci-fi museum, but he felt that our horror museum was a, uh, I can't remember the exact words. It was basically a disgrace because we were, uh, it, it was a, Sorry? It, was a, it was a blight on the sci-fi museum because we were promoting serial killers and death and violence. And I said, well, I I was – I didn't punch him. Uh, I was very polite and uh, uh, I didn't throw a pie in his face either. I I was very tempted. I couldn't find a pie. Oh, you could have (laughs) called us. We'd have brought you a pie. Yes. (laughs) The point of horror stories is that horrible things can be overcome. Dragons can be slain. The the monster can be overcome with torches and pitchforks. You know, well, this guy obviously was very close minded. But what I oh, I was very straight sir. ahead with him, and I told him that uh, we're not promoting or instigating violence. 
This is not about from, uh, celebrating serial killers. This is about showing in, in the bottom line, I, let me just back this up and then I'll tell you, I'll explain to you what I said, why I said do what I did to him. When I was a little kid, I auditioned for The Shining mm. and I didn't get it because I was a lousy kid actor, but I, uh, I knew Scatman Carruthers because my father knew him from the Aristocats and I, uh, talked to him and he showed me, I was invited to see the behind the scenes of special effects and how makeup was done back mm-hmm. then. And with the Bin Nye makeup kit and all that mm-hmm. stuff and that blood was corn syrup and that the things that look like gory things are usually puppets or they're uh, uh, CG now or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're effects. They're sculptures. They're, they start on the page with someone drawing them or now the computer. They're, from that, they're, they make maquettes usually. They make a sculpture. They, they then do the – there's so many – there's so much to the process of it. When a kid sees something that, oh my, God, that's so scary, and then they realize, well, that's just a hand puppet. That's just rubber. That's just you know, with with some cables in it to make it wiggle, you know. And right, and you show a kid what's behind the curtain, they're not going to be scared anymore. And I've met people who were adults who were afraid to leave their houses who started watching horror movies, mm-hmm. and they realized that nothing scared them anymore after mm-hmm. they could conquer that. They could conquer their fears. They could conquer leaving the friggin' house. You know, they could go. It grew from there. And there are a lot of aspects to that on the psychological end of it, facing your fears. And on the other side of it, it's going to be fun. It'll be a fun museum. There will be a gory side and there will be a non-gory side. You don't mix the two. Well, um, with respect to the... The uh, the special effects that are used in the horror movies, as you were saying, it's a tremendous spectrum of creative and technical abilities that all have to come together in order to produce that final that final uh, effect. And showing people the mechanics of how it works, oh my God, people just go, uh, people light up. It just it inspires them. Uh, because they see suddenly, oh, hey, this is something I could learn how to do. Or, at very least, this is fascinating. I had no idea this stuff actually worked that way. It'll probably be the latter, because most people don't know that unless they're mm-hmm. immersed in this world. And I've met so many older people who've read who read Famous Monsters magazine when they were kids and saw how it was done like that. Yeah, you can see it on a DVD or Blu-ray extras, but it's not the same as showing it, seeing it in your face and having a classroom of kids come around and see, oh, this is how this works. There's so many process to this. And and who knows? There may be a future little Rick Baker or Stan Winston in there. Absolutely. And it almost yeah. certainly will be. Speaking of famous monsters, did you do you have a line on any of the old Forey Ackerman collection? I know a few people. Okay. It was broken up, yeah. and a lot of what he had near the end was print, in print. There mm-hmm. were magazines and books and posters. No, but there was a lot of good stuff. There was amazing stuff. I went items. there at least once. I may have gone there twice. Before he sold his, it was late 
uh, late nineties. So it was before he sold his, you know, house and sold off a lot of collection. A lot of that collection wasn't his though. He was borrowing it yeah, from okay. uh, Ray Harryhausen and from uh, Ray Bradbury and other people, Spielberg and Lucas mm-hmm. and all this. So, to my knowledge, the the prime pieces are still with those people's estates, or they're with some of them. A lot of it's with Bob Burns. That now. was my. He was my next person to bring up. What a darling man! Yeah, I've I met him when I was a kid. I I've tried to reach out uh, to him since this whole thing began. I know that he. I heard that he promised a lot of it to Peter Jackson. So um, I I don't know. Well, if it's I, not there yet, you know, maybe you could take it on a tour and of Australia and then just kind of drop it off. Yeah. Uh, no, and I I want Peter Jackson totally involved. I want Guillermo del Toro involved with what we're doing, and Spielberg, of course, and George Lucas as soon as he's done preparing his uh, Chicago museum, and there. You know, I I want everyone involved. I want this to be for everyone, and I I want their geniuses to their genius to be immersed in what we're doing and actually inspire what we're doing. Not just we're museum people. Uh, we don't need you Hollywood people, which is a lot of the times the case. I've learned from other museums they they'll take their money, but they won't take their involvement. And that's, to me, a huge mistake. I'm not a museum person. I knew, I knew nothing about museums before we started this. But I figure if you have the most brilliant showbiz people involved, as well as the educational people, you'll come out with something that just knocks people's socks off. It's, uh, it's something I'm really looking forward to seeing. The... The single biggest thing on my mind, of course, is that bridge set. How much? Like <laughs> I'm a huge Trekkie. Just we we met. Okay, short short diversion. We met at a Star Trek club in the mid seventies when there was never going to be any new Star Trek again, and we don't we'd made our peace with that. <laughs> and um, you know my my uh, career in in practical effects began because I had. Uh, Seen, um, you were making Star Trek. I was making Star Trek props, props when because, you were a teenager. Yeah, when I was because a teenager, because you couldn't go buy them. <laughs> yeah, nobody made yeah. them. Uh, but uh, so I was wondering how much of the uh, collection for the Science Fiction Museum is actually um, Star Trek memorabilia and props and effects and you know uh, and costumes and things. There's a lot. Uh, I can tell you that by mid. 2016, we're going to have our first big exhibit that is very heavy Trekkie. Trekker, sorry. But, uh, either way. Oh, yeah. Very who, heavy who, Trekker. Who, who sorry, I'm a I am real, a very heavy Trekker. Okay. <laughs> I'm a real Trek fan, so I'm a Trekker. Well, oh, yeah, please. Gag me. These are people I, who been... needed to get over themselves 50 years ago. <laughs> we, we, have, we lived through the whole thing from, from the beginning when everybody was a Trekkie and then it was Trekkers and Trekkies. And, and then after a while. And then people, Star Wars came out and threw that whole thing out. You know, and, well, it's yeah. it's like the people who say that JJ fans of Star Trek aren't real Star Trek fans. You know, Star Trek fans a Star Trek fan. Um, if you're if you love it for the right reasons, then you're you know you're a Star Trek fan. And uh, okay, 
the JJ films did not have a lot of the elements that people missed from the other from the TV shows where you had you know seven seasons to tell different mm-hmm. stories and develop the characters. Um, but shoot, if it got people into it and it made them wonder, hey, I wonder what those earlier episodes are like. It's like Doctor Who. Uh, Same thing, if it will get them to look Mm -hmm. at the earlier ones and this and that and see the early Dalek ones and Tom Baker and all the rest. You know, who who are we, you know, what kind of snobs and horrible people are we to hold our, stick our nose up and say, oh, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's like If you like Star Trek, you're a Star Trek fan. That's all the definition we need. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's like the big hubbub about uh, CBS. Finally, after a couple of years of, of rumors and various uh, independent uh, companies trying to pitch their ideas for new Star Trek TV series, uh, they finally got one, and it has nothing to do with any of the any of the uh, any of the little groups that have been pitching. Well, we don't know, do we? Well, I I don't think it is. We are talking to the uh, screenwriter for Lolani, so of Star Trek continues. <laughs> so. Yes, I yes I did we, my homework. Yes, she does. Yeah. She is. This is uh, I can't do I these shows without girl. I can't do these shows without Susan because she is she's my spare brain. She is <laughs> she is yeah. she is well, Miss Research. I mean she But knows. the thing is, you know, they've got any number of farm teams all over the country and all over the world. They could do worse than than uh, picking some of you guys up. Yeah, uh, well, the fan films there's Star Trek Continues, of course, that I wrote Lulani for, uh, Vic Mignogna and mm-hmm. the group, uh, Farragut, I think, is mm-hmm. their group when it's not Vic doing his Star Trek Continues. And there's, uh, Renegades, of course, I let them borrow our Enterprise D set huh. for. Is that what that, I was wondering why you were getting thanked by them. I, I, yeah, it's not because that they in the love me. They no, love it was, you. uh, I, I brought over the Enterprise D bridge set in late twenty uh, uh, fourteen, I guess, or thirteen. I can't remember now. Thereabouts. And yeah, twenty twenty fourteen. It would have been, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I uh, you know I'm I'm in support for anyone who loves Star Trek so much or any sci fi so much that they. Want to spend their time, money, effort into doing something positive like that, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to Axanar. I'm looking forward to uh, their Axanar looks five. absolutely beautiful. Mm. Just, oh, your your heavy military oh. science fiction fans are going to go ape bananas over this. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's, 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 friends, and it's just visually just gorgeous. I mean, every uh, every every brush stroke is is there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, but it's, it's also indicative of how much thirst there is for Star Trek. And, um, this sort of leads into my next question is what do you think of CBS putting, uh, the new Star Trek series behind, uh, a walled garden? Well, that's what they were going to do with next generation. Remember back in, if you do your research on that, uh, see any of the documentaries, in late 80s, they were going to open up their own network that was uh, a – if it wasn't paid for, it was at least their own network. And I can't remember. Well, UPN was, was came later and they, they eventually did do that. 
with uh, Voyager as their flagship show, so to speak. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, but that was going to happen in the late eighties. I remember that, and then they changed they changed gears and turned it into a syndicated show. Yeah, uh, I think I think the industry wasn't ready for a, you know, a fourth network at the time. Yeah, yeah, there were several attempts at fourth networks, and yeah, with various, Fox. Fox. I think Fox was the first, wasn't Fox it? Fox would have been the first, and you know, you can thank the Simpsons for that. Yeah. <laughs> And but not to mention married with children and get a life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I my thoughts on it. I they're going for what has already recently made the money, which is J.J. Abrams, mm-hmm. and they're going with the co-writer, not Orky, but uh, or Orsi, but the uh, I can't remember his last name. But um, that's Kurtzman choice. That's the obvious choice. And that ties into Star Trek Three, and mm-hmm. so yeah, that's no big surprise, really, in a marketing standpoint. Is it what I would have wanted? No. Is it what many fans want? Not really, but you know, I mean, we'll this, see. This, I that's, hope this, this is what's really. attracting the money, though. Yeah, that's the business model of choice. I mean, how many people, you know, bought HBO just to get? Uh, 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 Game, of Game of Thrones, or yeah. you know, or you know, whatever network for The Sopranos, or whatever their favorite other show is. It's and I'll tell you, all the studios business. are doing that now. There's going to be in the no. next few months. I, I've known honestly. I knew about the Star Trek show about a month before they announced it. Mm-hmm. The the reason I couldn't talk about it is because I had too many friends who were potentially going to be working on it, and it might get back to them if. I blabbed about it. No, you but, you can't be the leak. Right. Well, I mean, this is, I, it's, I have no loyalty to CBS Paramount. I'm not on their contract. I mean, I'm not on their payroll, but I care about the people who might have gotten in trouble or lost a gig because mm-hmm. who, who mentioned that to me? You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, we totally know what you mean. And the stuff we, we can't say on the radio is, is pretty momentous as well. We get yeah, it. All right. Yeah. Oh yeah, we we it's across just, the same problem. But you know, I again, I hope it's brilliant. I hope Star Trek Three is brilliant. Well, I, I, hope, I, I I think uh, uh, I think the distribution model. I think <sighs> people feel the, very very entitled to free Star Trek because of what has gone before. But and there's a lot of little brats out there trying trying to circulate petitions. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, that's obviously not going to work. But. Uh, my what I was going to say was uh, in the mid nineties, um, there was this big influx of cash into the computer game industry because the big studios saw that the computer game production cycle very closely resembled the motion picture production cycle. So they thought, oh, well, we can do this too. This is this is close to what we already know. So let's jump in with both feet, and they all did. And everything they did bombed because nobody wants linear storytelling in uh, a computer game because they don't they don't want an experience that's on the rail. They want something on a rail. They want something they can control. Hmm. So all of those games bombed, and then they all jumped out again with the deleterious effect of having raised the expectations of the consumer in terms of the quality of the games. This put a tremendous pinch. On, on the game developers, first of all. Uh, and secondly, 
uh, it illustrated the it sort of illustrates the point I'm going after, which is that the studios really only see things from their own uh, their own corporate centric point of view. Um, they only see things from wherever uh, the point of view from where they're standing at the moment. Well, they're not artists. Uh, well, no, no, they're not. But even even more than that, they don't even, they don't take into effect into account the fact that every other studio is thinking the same thing. Yeah. Right. So what we're going to have is a splintering of media distribution that becomes so fragmented that people just throw up their hands. Mm. You know, I I think Netflix is the right model. But every studio going out for themselves, oh, Netflix is getting rich. So if we do this, we'll get rich. Uh, no, of course. It doesn't exactly work that way. Disney it, might get away with it. Disney could probably do it. But I don't think the other studios can because they, they don't – they haven't developed themselves as uh, – As a brand into themselves. Yeah. They, <laughs> yeah, they develop, they develop the brands of their films but not of the pictures. I mean, uh, you know, how many – how many people, apart from uh, science fiction fans, happen to know that E.T. was a universal picture? Mm. You know, I, probably not very many. Um, and, and so would they know to go to Universal to see a particular film? You know, that, that uh, the studio association per title just is not there. Well, I think one thing, Universal has a tour. And they have a theme park. Mm -hmm. They're not utilizing E.T., for example. But they are they unbelievably to. utilizing Warner Brothers' Harry Potter. And I don't know if you've been to that ride. I went last year to Universal Florida. It is hands down the most immersive environment you will ever be in in your life. And Disney is now seeing that as the flagship. And everything that Disney's doing now with Star Wars, it's saying, okay, we can't drop the ball here because Universal is now competing with us and doing right. a better job. Right. Uh, well, Disney and they the also have one for, shot at this. You know, Star Wars, they have one chance to get this right. I think, oh, how could they not? Uh, if, if the, uh, if the theme park mentality is as, uh, vast and mm. as successful and with as much integrity as Disney is doing with Marvel, those Marvel films are we, – we've hit a new pinnacle of comic filmmaking other than a few one-shots here and there like Superman and uh, Batman. But uh, the new Marvel universe that they have, not a two-year, not a three-year, not a five-year – I. I've heard that they have like a 15-year plan of what they're doing. Well, and It may, may vary here and there. That's the way that studios should be. They're not necessarily gonna, going to be that way, but uh, typically a studio head lasts three to five years tops, and then they're out. Mm -hmm. And then it's, okay, uh, do we have to throw them out, or uh, do they get their pension? Uh, do they get stock? <laughs> uh -huh. So, yeah, no, I uh, – are they going to think like the Japanese or the Asian mentality of let's think 20, 50 years in the future or, or are they going uh, to think like American middle managers and, and just yeah. rearrange the furniture and say, 
all it'll be three years before I can tell whether or not this plan works, you know, and by that time they're out with their pension. Or it'll be one year before I figure out if I'm going to get fired. Right. Right. So Uh, No, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I did not know that about the uh, video game market in the mid-90s. I I must have slept through that. I I don't know. Well, I was a game developer back then, so that's that's how I knew. Uh, (laughs) Okay, all right. But uh, I don't know. The Star Trek game was all right, but I cannot think of another franchise that you know was was movie based and made it. Uh the Star Wars. Oh, Star, Star Wars. Wars. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Sorry, much bigger. And Star mm-hmm. Star Trek games in general are are they do poorly. It's it's rare that one does well. Star Trek Online is doing which is too bad because we have friends doing voices for those. Oh yeah. <laughs> Star Trek Online is doing well, though, is it not? Yeah, it's doing pretty well. You know, it's not. It's but not, that's online. You it's see, not outstanding. It's not outstanding compared to World of Warcraft, but it's doing well. Right. So, no, I, I have quite a few friends on that game who, on, in all aspects of it, but I know that they're fans and they do know what they're doing. And uh, if they get the approval to do with it what they would want, I can't imagine it not being uh, having integrity. Let's see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is one. Well, thing. Shutting down a third of Disneyland to build this is is oh, for a big blow. Star, Star Wars for Star Wars. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So it better be good, is all I can say. But, oh, it, uh, it will be again if they if they're keeping the models set mm-hmm. that they have for their films. And if they're and they're not, they're no idiots. They they've seen how much Universal bested them in mm. the theme park world. Because honestly, that Harry Potter thing blew my mind. You were literally in that world. You take that train across from the Hogwarts mm. uh, to the to Victoria Station. I think it was. Uh-huh. Uh, in the window through the halls that you just passed, you suddenly see Hermione. Walk by, looking through the window at you, saying, "Harry, are you in there?" Uh, uh, my mind was blown. I said, "My God, I'm actually in this movie, this this world," and it's a very simple effect. It's Pepper's ghost effect uh-huh. projected onto a, a screen, but it worked. It really worked, and I just cracked up. I, <laughs> I just and I said, "Okay, they they out Disney Disney." They did. It's just one of those things where you experience and you go, you you're internally squeeing with delight. Yes, they nailed this. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what I hear they're going to be doing with uh, with Star Wars. It doesn't cost that much more to do it this way, really. It's just not. Uh, it, sometimes it's just not the, low, the easy route. Sometimes the low tech solution's the right one. Rear projection. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, well, yeah. <laughs> Tupac lives again. That's basically how they did it. You know, mm-hmm. The the uh, resurrecting Tupac and having that 3D concert, you know, the concert where uh, an avatar of Tupac was on stage is basically a Pepper's Ghost image. And soon to be Tupac land. Yes. <laughs> you know, there'd be a market for that. Yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah. It was, well, you know, three Pac was too much and yeah, one right. Pac wasn't enough. So Tupac. Yeah, yeah. Let's have Tupac Shakur. <laughs> oh, there would be an interesting. <laughs> did you did you know that Tim Russ is uh, has a band and is a wonderful singer? I did. Yeah, I call him and the he's Velvet a great Vulcan. Great guy too. Great guy. Oh yeah, we've talked to him on the show. And uh, 
anyway, the <laughs> getting back to the museum. Oh, um, that. Let's have you, that. Let's have concerts at the museum. I, I want to tell you some of uh, the advisory board that I don't really talk about too much, but we we have a really impressive board of directors, uh, including the new ones on our sci-fi board. One is Dan Curry, who did all the – he was special effects supervisor for pretty much all the Star Trek shows mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. brilliant guy, great guy. And there's Timothy Earls who did Firefly and Superman versus Batman and all these other new Fast and Furious 7 and very famous uh, designer. And uh, there's Dan Madsen who you may not know his name. He's a, a little person and he's the guy who founded the Star Wars uh, celebration. Uh-huh. Oh, Back in the 70s. He is the man. And he's also the first guy who started the official Roddenberry uh, Star Trek fan club in the early 70s. Oh, my oh, goodness. good for him. Yeah. Uh, I'm he's, so he's honored really, to. He's know, really Star- important to have on the team, too. Yeah. Well, Star Wars provided work for a lot of little people at the time. Well, well besides the that. Thing, that. That episode, the reason I mentioned that, the episode uh, something gods is in the title. I can't remember what it's called. Of Gods and Men. Uh, no, no, no. no. Uh, the original TOS series. Oh, uh, whom Gods Destroy. With Whom Gods Destroy, was that it? Yeah. Um, the only one he saw that episode when he was a little kid. And he, at the end where Kirk, you know, tells him that it's not about the size, that, you know, you... you oh, 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 it's uh, Plato's stepchildren. Plato's stepchildren, yes. Well, yeah, Michael Dunn had to have been a real hero for him, even though he played a bad guy in a lot of his career. Mm-hmm. Not in that episode, though. That really touched him, and he he saw for the first time, from what he told me, that was the first time he saw himself as something more that he could do anything. And by God, he did do more than most people put together. <laughs> um, he's he's a real hero of mine. All these all these people are heroes of mine. I I don't have one schmuck on our entire. <laughs> Isn't what it directors? Great? I mean, people. You hear the you hear the uh, uh, you hear the meme around you all the time. You don't have to love the people you work with. And my view is, well, why the heck not? Yeah. What is it? What What is it that's preventing me from choosing to work with people I love being around? And well, it's, if you're the one to choose, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, or, or you don't have to put up with them. You know, right. just find someplace else to work. Now, we have a no-jerk policy, basically. I like it. That's good. Yeah. Where That's do we sign stuff. up? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, Actually, everyone... We kind of did because we did contribute to the you know, bridge set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, was, literally, was everyone involved with what we're doing now is we're all – all of our directions are unilateral and we want this to happen for the right reasons. Still, none of us have been paid. That will change next year, thank God, or, you know, I'm going to be in trouble. But uh, up till now, we realized that if we didn't continue forward trajectory, this was not going to happen, mm-hmm. whether we were getting paid or not. Yeah, exactly. It's brilliant. It's all brilliant. And uh, I think I speak for probably several million fans when I say I'm very glad that you're doing this. 
And it's, well, it's inspiring. <laughs> it's, in, it's inspiring. I'm glad you're using all this power, brain power for good and not evil. <laughs> right. It could be the Doctor yeah, Evil yeah, Lab of Evil, um, and 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 he could ra- hold the world for ransom for one million dollars. One right, million, right. And uh, I have a mini me. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, you mentioned that uh, one of the goals was, uh, um, you know, showing how we could derive science from fiction. And uh, one of the other shows uh, that's a regular on Krypton Radio is Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom. And the theme of that show is science from fiction. And this is what he does. And he has, uh, he's not, in addition to his radio show and podcast, uh, he organizes conventions and he works with museums in Georgia uh, Florida, yeah, as yeah well. Florida. I'm sorry, it's it's Florida, and uh, uh, this is his big emphasis and focus. And so he he's going to want to talk to you. I think mm. he might be an interesting person to at least you know exchange some notes with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, I, education. Like I said, there's no point to do what we're doing if it's just oh, that's nice. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, I. I want this to be, in some ways, an everything museum, even though it's specifically sci-fi or specifically horror, because if you're into this, why shouldn't, why should you be forced into that? So if you're not into science, if you don't give the slightest flip about science, it shouldn't just be a science museum because you're going to be bored out of your mind. If you're into costuming or cosplay, Okay, well, you can go to this, this, and this, and this exhibit and learn about the cosplay, who made the costumes. If you're interested in the prosthetics or the makeup, here's this and this and this. Learn about uh, Rick Baker and, uh, gosh, uh, trying to Dick Smith and all these guys. Or if you're interested in the CG aspect or the writing aspect or the directing aspect. I had Harlan Ellison I met last year, and whereas earlier this year. Mm. And I talked to him about... Uh, and people said, oh, you got to watch out for Harlan. You know, he can be cantankerous and, you know, this and that. And I went straight up to him and I said, we're doing a sci-fi museum and David Gerald's on our board of directors. And uh, he told me – and he, and then Harlan sat back and he said, would this sci-fi museum include possibly a uh, program for writing? And I said, oh, absolutely. And he said, well, then would this possibly include a program where the writers would come and discuss their work and – I said, absolutely. He says, where do I sign up? <laughs> awesome. So give him a yes. chance to talk. And he will talk for six hours straight. And you'll enjoy taking... it. You won't notice the time passing because he's just so darned interesting and engaging. He won't even take a sip of water the whole time. He'll just go. <laughs> no, he's got a sane wife now who will take care of him and feed him water. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's the kind of all these horrible things. Uh, Barris. Uh, just died, the car creator. Yes, yes George Barris. Barris. So yeah. Yes. And I'd heard, again, oh, he's cantankerous and blah, 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 blah. I met him. He was lovely. His daughter was lovely. And they were absolutely thrilled that we were going to create a hall of cars in our sci-fi museum to honor him and to honor his work and the Batmobile and this and that. So this is their legacy. And... I think basically 
a lot of the time, yes, yeah, sometimes a fan may come up to these people and they'll they'll be a jerk, but most of the time it's somebody wanting something from them and they're not wanting to give it for free. But I'm I don't ask anything of these people other than uh, let them know what we're doing and I want this to increase their their legacy. That it's really that simple. I'm I'm not asking them for money. I'm not asking them for uh, a, a pint of blood. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, except for the horror museum, but uh, yeah. well, there's recipes for that. <laughs> well, I've had uh, that's how I I think that's how I've gotten so much support from my heroes like uh, Bill Shatner and mm-hmm. uh, George K and all these Benedict Cumberbatch even supported us uh, on he Twitter. Can't it either. Nobody can. last year. Um, I have a theory about horror people, people who create the most horrible things out of their night, everybody's nightmares. They're the nicest people in the world because they get all the darkness in their soul out on paper or plastic or celluloid and don't have to carry it around with them anymore. That's probably right. I think that does sort of exercise their demons. You know, Robert Block, pussycat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Clive Barker. One of the sweetest guys you'll ever meet. Yeah, they don't and, have to carry it around all the time. Right, right. Uh, I hear Stephen King's the same way. I haven't met him. I haven't met West, him West Craven, the late West Craven. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. I've never heard an unkind word about him from anyone. Yeah, neither have I. And I've worked in the practical effects industry since uh, 83. Mm. 82. Yeah. Um Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. You are listening to The Event Horizon, and we have been speaking to Houston Huddleston. the um, Who is awesome. Who is awesome. <laughs> and, and the organizer and the future curator, I assume, of the – is it the, the – is it The Hollywood, Hollywood Science, Science Fiction, Fiction Museum. Museum? Yes, it's the Hollywood Science Fiction Museum, which is HollywoodSciFi.com or .org, org, mm-hmm. and it's the Hollywood Horror Museum, which is uh, HollywoodHorror.org, org, and they both have videos on them that explain it, or like three-minute videos that explain everything that's about what we're doing, why we're doing it, who's involved, all that stuff within three, I think, very fast minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I can hardly wait to go have a look for it myself. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 119 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 7th, 2015 with your hosts, Gene Turnbow and Susan L. Fox. Our guest this evening has been Houston Huddleston, founder and CEO of the New Starship Foundation, the organization that saved the bridge of the Enterprise, 1701-D as well as the soon-to-be-realized Hollywood Science Fiction Museum. This episode will air again on November 8th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at additional times throughout the coming week. See our website for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on KryptonRadio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, Contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at catcarter at kryptonradio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio. 
to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was Larry Nevin. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.